Hey everybody, Mike here. Let's talk about Romans 13, shall we? A special midweek breaking news edition of the Vox podcast. Um, as many of you will already know, um, yesterday, uh, at least when I'm recording this, our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, was talking about immigration policy. And, there, and there's been a lot of misinformation about parents separating, uh, being separated from their children. And, and that is happening, but it's a bit cloudy in terms of um, when it started. And, and there's been some exaggeration uh, of this, but still a horrific, horrific thing, regardless um, of, you know, even if it were just one family, that the, this is just awful. Um, and so Sessions was, I think he was giving a speech or something, making a statement about this policy. And here was his full quote. Um, he said, let me take an aside to discuss concerns raised by our church friends about separating families. So hallelujah that our church friends are raising concerns about this. It says, many of the criticism raised in recent days are not fair or logical and some are contrary to law. First, a legal entry into the United States is a crime as it should be. Persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. Order, he continues, orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves and protect the weak and lawful. Our policies uh, that can result in short-term separation of families, those are not unusual or unjustified American citizens that are jailed do not usually take their children to jail with them, and non-citizens who cross our borders unlawfully between our ports of entry with children are not an exception. They are the ones who broke the law. They are the ones who endanger their own children on their trek. The United States, on the other hand, goes to extraordinary lengths to protect them while the parents go through a short detention period. So that was, um, that was Sessions. And then independently, evidently, during um, one of the... Uh, one of the uh, press conferences, the daily briefings given by Sarah Huckabee Sanders, um, the, the question became, where does it say in the Bible that it's moral to take children away from their mothers? Sanders replies, it is very biblical to enforce the law, and that is actually repeated a number of times throughout the Bible. It is, a, uh, it is a moral policy to follow and enforce the law. So, uh, again, as I referenced, um, the, the, there, there's some confusion, and obviously it's, this has been politicized like crazy. Um, even, you know, one of the pictures that was floating out there about children in cages that was taken, completely different scenario, completely different context. So this is, you know, this is one of the, uh, one of those areas where, listen, People of faith can really disagree over how we should treat uh, immigration law and uh, not immigrants, because I think people of faith have to agree on the basis of their faith that these are image bearers and they're worthy of, of uh, dignity, respect, honor, and care. And the issue really then becomes, well, how do you do that if they're trying to cross the into the country illegally? And, and I have no, you know, I have my own thoughts on that. I find a guy like Matthew Sorens, uh, follow him on Twitter, S-O-R-E-N-S, uh, Welcoming the Strangers, a book he wrote several years ago. Really, really found it helpful. 
um, in terms of what policy should be enacted. And his essential policy is, hey, we should make it harder to enter the country illegally, easier to do it legally. And, um, and we have to provide a road to amnesty um, or to citizenship for all those who are already here. And, and that, that just seemed very common sense to me. But, but regardless of your take on immigration policy, the thing that I want to deal with is the quoting of the Bible to justify any policy whatsoever. So the, the fact that the Bible's getting pulled in here as of a justification for any policy is an issue, but the, the fact that the Bible's getting pulled in as a justification for this policy is even a bigger deal, right? And so uh, I'm not trying to enter into the immigration debate, and I'm recognizing that the situation itself is a bit murky, but the ways in which Sessions and Sanders answered questions, I think have to be responded to for the sake of Christian witness. And what I mean by that is, you may disagree with me on how immigration policy should be enacted. Fantastic. We can love Jesus and disagree on that. Uh, the, the issue becomes, when you use the Bible to, um, to, to uh, justify immigration policies that I personally think, if, if, if these are things that are actually happening and, and evidence seems to be that it is, then um, you're, you're actually, if you want to hold those policies, fine. Just don't freaking use the Bible to, to justify it. Because the very Bible you're quoting, I think, could get you in a little trouble if you're going to take that one part out of context. Meaning, and I want to look at three different, three different parts of this discussion. First, I want to look at passages that directly address immigration. If you're going to use the Bible in an immigration discussion, then you've got, you've got literally dozens of texts, particularly in the Old Testament, but even love of neighbor and love of stranger in the New Testament, um, to deal with. So if you're going to quote the Bible in immigration debate, man, you better, you better come in with more than just a couple of proof texts, because we can proof text you to death. Uh, secondly, I want to look at uh, just briefly mention, actually, a couple of passages where civil disobedience is in the Bible. And so I'm not sure that just simply saying, hey, these are our laws, we must follow them, that's in the Bible, is sufficient enough to, to deal with the counterexamples of people who clearly, when they had to choose between the laws of God and the laws of humanity, clearly had to choose the laws of God, even though they were in disobedience to the laws of humanity. So, so the right of the government to rule is not in any way, shape, or form absolute. And then thirdly, I want to deal with Romans 13, which is this passage that gets quoted around all the time. So first, and, and this is really, really easy, um, passages that directly address immigration. I mean, really simple, like Leviticus 19, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born, love them as yourself. You were foreigners in Egypt. Now, again, we're talking about Israel and Israel's foreign policy. We've been talking about that in our Paul and politics podcasts. So obviously it's relevant here. If you're, if you object though, that, Hey, that was for Israel and not for us. Well, then you have to deal a little bit with quoting the Bible on immigration policies at all. My point is, if you're going to quote the Bible in immigration policy discussions, then I'm going to quote the Bible right back at you. If you want to get into a proof texting war about this, then we win, very simply, because the Bible is overwhelmingly pro-immigrant, pro-foreigner, pro-stranger, and pro-life. End of story. 
So if you're looking to the Bible to define policy, then your policy should literally be that of, of love of neighbor. End of story. Come in. We'll take care of you. We'll provide for you. We'll feed you. Right? So, so Leviticus 19 later, or earlier in the chapter, there's a law of gleaning. When you would harvest a field, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvests. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen, leave them for the poor of the foreigner. In other words, you get one shot at your field, get everything you can, leave the corners and the edges for the poor and the foreigner. Um, but if something falls off the back of your wagon, you got to leave it there. Jeremiah 22 Thus says the Lord, do what is right and just. Rescue the victims from the hands of their oppressors. Many people flee to our country because of oppression. Do not wrong or oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow. Do not shed innocent blood in its place. Deuteronomy 24. You shall not hand over to their master any slaves who have taken refuge with, refuge with you from their master. Let them live among you in any place they choose, in any one of your communities that seems good to them. Do not oppress them. James, true religion that God honors is pure and false is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. Woe to those in Isaiah who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights, withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Deuteronomy 10, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. You are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Um, Exodus, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you are foreigners in Egypt. Malachi, I will come to you and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. Do not, and, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. First Kings, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, when they come and pray towards this temple, this is in First Kings during the dedication of the temple, um, and then hear from heaven your dwelling place, do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all peoples on earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bells your name. In other words, uh, what they're saying is if, if somebody comes to worship your God, uh, do whatever they ask so that the name and fame of the God of Israel will increase throughout the nations, right? Uh, laws uh, about immigration and narratives about immigrants are all over the Old Testament. Um, they were commanded, Israel was commanded to provide for immigrants. They were, um, immigrants were commanded to receive a portion of uh, the third year tithe stored up in the cities. Uh, they they were granted rest on the Sabbath. Uh, they were to be paid in a very timely manner. Um, they were to receive justice in the courts. They were not to be taken advantage of. Preston Sprinkle has a really good um, article on the biblical view of immigration, not immigration policy, but of immigrants um, on his website at Preston Sprinkle. And so... Um, uh, I'm quoting him here. He says, The prophets have a very strong view of immigration. They frequently call down heavy fire on anyone who claims to be a follower of Yahweh and mistreats a foreigner. You can't claim to be a believer and mistreat the resident alien. And he quotes passages. On the flip side, to care for immigrants is good evidence that one actually believes in God. Um, 
between uh, and then and then in the Old Testament, of course, Jesus is all over the love of foreigner. I mean, the Samaritan woman, the Samaritan lepers, um, the the centurion, the Gentile centurion. I mean, Jesus is modeling and teaching love of enemy, love of neighbor. I mean, he's he is absolutely agreeing with the Old Testament prophets. So so if you're gonna proof text in an immigration debate, then then we got a whole lot of ammo on the side that are immigration laws, whatever they are, are not nearly as permissive as they should be. Secondly, you have clear examples of civil disobedience. There are times when scripture itself says when God calls his people to break the laws of the land, right? One of the classics is in Acts 5. There, the Peter and John, I believe, are, have just been imprisoned and whipped uh, because of their testimony about Jesus the Messiah. They're ordered to be quiet. And what these two guys say, they stand in front of the Jewish ruling council, one of the authorities uh, of the day, and they say, we must obey God rather than men. You take the book of Revelation, which we're studying in a different podcast series. I mean, that whole book is um, is showing off the demonic nature of sitting behind the Roman Empire, you know, in uh, in the late first century. I mean, it's, you've got like in Exodus, you've got the Pharaoh issuing a decree that, um, that, that the, the firstborn children, uh, firstborn sons are to be murdered in Egypt. And you've got heroic midwives who hide them instead. Moses, Moses is one of them. Um, so there's some civil disobedience for you. Um, you know, Herod also orders, uh, the slaughter of, of uh, of boys in um, in Bethlehem, and uh, you, so you've got Mary and Joseph, you know, fleeing to Egypt. You've got uh, somebody like Rahab in the uh, Old Testament who hides and protects Jewish spies in the land. Uh, you've got Daniel refusing to bow, refusing to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar commands. Um, Nebuchadnezzar commands, you know, uh, the people to worship him. Daniel refuses, is thrown into this fiery furnace. And so, so if you're going to quote the Bible at immigration debates, um, <laughs> and, and all you're going to say is, well, the Bible says follow the law. Well, uh, it's, first of all, that's not what the Bible says. And then, and then secondly, there's a whole bunch of other uh, text on immigrants that if you're going to start quoting, we can quote, you know, too. The big, the big thing in Sessions referenced this, um, and I think I think Huckabee Sanders was referring to it too. Is this a passage from Romans 13? And this is this has been used to justify apartheid. This has been used to justify slavery. This has been used to justify the segregation of blacks and whites in culture. This has been used to justify our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, this is one of the most abused and twisted passages that you can imagine. So. Um, uh, some references really quick. N.T. Wright has some stuff on Romans 13 that you need to check out. A guy named Ben Witherington wrote a commentary on Romans where he's got some Romans 13 stuff. Our friend Preston Sprinkle has a Romans 13 article on his website that's very good. Um, uh, who else? N.T. Did I say N.T. Wright? I think I said N.T. Wright. Um, uh, boy, I'm missing somebody, but, but, Oh, Tim Gombas has some stuff on uh, on Romans 13 that's excellent. So, so if you're in for you know kind of doing some research and some study, those are some places that I would begin. Now, 
Uh, I want to read Romans 13, and then and then I want to show that the interpretation that's being assumed here uh, by Sessions and implied by Huckabee Sanders um, is absolutely contrary to what the text actually teaches. So here is here's Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Pretty, pretty clear in English, right? Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do not do right, um, but for those who do wrong. No, I'm sorry. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but not for those who do no wrong. <laughs> no, I messed it up again. All right. Uh, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right. So we should not be afraid of rulers if we do right, but only for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear uh, of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Wow. If you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword or violence um, or execution for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you must pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, you can see why this is a favorite passage of dictators, right? <laughs> I mean, you could use this passage to simply say, okay, then Hitler, then the Christians that opposed Hitler were wrong. The, uh, the Christians that opposed Stalin's 30 million, you know, uh, the killing 30 million of his own people were wrong. Uh, Bonhoeffer was wrong to participate in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Um, the, the Christians in um, uh, South Africa were wrong to oppose apartheid. I mean, if that's the argument, then, um, then, then that's pretty, pretty crazy. And it seems, if, if the argument is that God establishes the governments and really and and to rebel against the governments is to rebel against God and it seems like that just doesn't apply to an American democracy but that applies to North Korea that applies to Russia that applies everywhere so I, I want to raise several objections to what this sounds like in English now again I mean it, it's so easy to just say well you know let's go to the Greek and let's go to context but in this case, um, it really is true that we yank this sucker out of context in English and, and uh, it is not saying what we think it's saying or what we want it to say. So of several, several objections to this understanding of Romans, all right? Um, because this the, Romans 13 here is used in the immigration debate to say, okay, the Bible teaches that we are to obey our governments. Our government says that uh, entering the country illegally is wrong. 
Um, therefore, we should build higher walls and establish stricter laws against illegal aliens. Okay, there you go. We're just enforcing the laws. And when you read Sessions' full speech, and when you hear Huckabee Sanders' full comments, that's what they're saying. They're saying, hey, all we're doing is enforcing the law. The Obama administration softened the law on some things, and blah, 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 blah. All we're doing is enforcing the law. And Christians, shut your yaps. That's what Sessions is saying. Shut your yaps, because the Bible says it's good to follow uh, the laws of the land. All right. So he's telling us to shut up and quit raising concerns about um, our dear president uh, and the policies being enacted. So uh, that's what gets me fired up is he's telling Christians to shut up uh, and using the Bible to do it. Well, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Sessions, you have, um, you've quoted the Bible very inaccurately. Rather than encouraging us to shut up, I think there's uh, some pretty fun stuff for us to do. All right. First of all, Christians who use this line of thought, hey, it's law of the land, baby, apply this line of thought so freaking inconsistently, right? It does say in Romans 13, and it does say in 1 Peter 2, that Christians should submit to governing authorities, okay? But uh, uh, we've just gone over examples where whenever the governing authority contradicts the fundamental affirmations of the people of God, the people of God are in the right to resist the unjust laws, the false worship, uh, the idolatrous injustice that the state calls for. So, so you can't you can't just read Romans thirteen out of the rest of the Bible. And Paul, as a Jew, knowing the Old Testament inside and out, would not have just blanketly said these things, knowing there are clear counters clear counter examples that were not deemed rebellion by God, where people disobeyed the governing authorities. Not only that, Paul himself gets killed by the governing authorities <laughs> for his treason against them, right? So, and then not only that, if, if Christians really wanted to say, hey, it's the law of the land, we're all for law and order, then where is the freaking legitimization uh, of uh, gay rights? How can we applaud a baker who refuses to bake a cake um, for, uh, for a gay couple uh, claiming religious liberty when clearly the law of the land says that gay marriage is a legitimate form of marriage and civil union. What the heck? You can't just pick and choose when we, we're going to insist everyone follows the, rule, follows the rules of the state. The rules of the state uh, are women that are, women are allowed uh, uh, to have abortions? Why do we why do we restrict and picket abortion clinics? Right now, I'm not I'm not saying we don't protest. Of course, my my point simply is 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 the way we apply Romans 13. Oh, it's great. Yes, obey the laws of the land when it comes to immigration policy. But oh no no no, the law of the land here is wrong when it comes to my personal conviction about whether or not gay people are married, and so therefore I don't bake them a cake. Now, whether it was illegal or not. I'm not getting into that whole discussion. My point is, it's just this is very inconsistently applied. What happens? What if? What if? Uh, what if the governing authorities outlawed the Second Amendment? Is a question uh, Pre Preston loves to ask. Would all the Christians just give up their guns automatically and and quote Romans 13 while they're doing it? I mean, come on, it's so dumb. And not only that, but if all freaking governments are established by God, then why do we go into places like China and North Korea smuggling in Bibles, 
breaking like or or the Middle East, why, why do we go into those places knowingly breaking their laws for the sake of the gospel? If this reading of Romans 13 is correct, then God has established communist governments. He has established Sharia law. He has established these other forms of government. And what the heck are American evangelicals doing practicing civil disobedience in order to get their message out? Right? I mean, it, this is ridiculous in how we inconsistently apply this. So that's that's number one. Number two, there's, there's a bit of a debate when it says when it says that God establishes um there's no authority except which God has established a guy named uh, John Howard Yoder um talked about how established there of course can mean um set up but it can also mean um order or file or um uh, it, it's kind of like, and this is kind of a weird way to understand the word. It's like the word, I think the word's tasso and it can mean to orchestrate or file or order something. And so, so Yoder's thought, and, and it's been echoed by other scholars since, is that, that we, God isn't saying established doesn't mean that, that God approves of or God has specifically ordered the specific form of government and its evil. That's not what established means here. What established means is that God orders governments, that, that government itself is the thing being referred to, the act of governing politics in a fallen world where people where often people have no motivation towards the good other than the fear of the consequences for doing wrong. God uses governments as he finds them. He orders them um, and uh, he, he files them. He orchestrates them to punish wrongdoers. In other words, God isn't, Paul isn't saying that God has established, okay, so the Chinese people are going to be ruled by communism and Hitler, that was, that was all me and apartheid, that was me too. No, 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 no. Paul isn't saying that at, at all for crying out loud. When he uses the word established, some scholars, and others disagree, of course, some scholars don't see the, the, the word to mean like he propped up these governments, but rather that he orchestrates them. That as he, he takes what he finds and he uses them in a fallen world to bring about as much justice as he can get out of them. God is always in favor of justice and, and maximizing justice and minimizing evil. Oh, Greg Boyd, that was the other guy uh, who has some stuff on Romans 13. He's got a book, The Myth of a Christian Nation. He's got his sermon series. He's got like hundreds of sermons. Um, uh not hundreds, but dozens of sermons probably on politics and, and Jesus. I mean, some really, really good stuff. That was, that's who I knew I was missing. Now, uh, the idea here is that established doesn't mean that God, uh, like we hear established and we think, okay, so that means that literally God approved or God ordained uh, the, the Third Reich um, taking out six million Jews. No, of course, Paul would never say that in a million, million years, ever ever. God is not the author of evil, ever. And so um, the idea is that God is always uh, moving to maximize justice, to minimize evil, um, and, uh, and, and God will file, he will order 
uh, governments. He will orchestrate governments to uh, an end that uh, that helps pursue justice. That that when people don't want to do the right or the good on their own, uh, there are consequences for doing wrong established by earthly governments. Obviously, they're not all uh, created equal, nor are they all good. So, so one objection is well, established doesn't mean. Um, uh, established doesn't mean like uh, that God propped them up specifically. It, it means that they government. It could either mean that God, God, that Paul means God created the idea of government or the reality of government in a fallen world to help punish wrongdoers, and then human beings who are corrupt do with with, with the idea of government however they will. That that God imagined the idea of the polis and the po- and politics and the ways human beings will order themselves. And so that this idea, government itself, not a specific form of it, but government itself is what God has ordained. Uh, others think, no, though, established here means ordered. Uh, it doesn't mean um, appointed or propped up. But still, there, there's another, and this to me is the killer argument that just defeats, defeats entirely the, the wrong-headed view of, of Romans 13. Romans 13 is shockingly connected to Romans 12. And I know this is news, but uh, there aren't chapter headings or verse numbers. And so you would have read 12 and 13 together as if there were one thought. So the, the issue is that when we pick up 13 in verse 1, Paul's actually continuing thought he began in chapter 12, verse 14. And so I want to read to you, um, I want to read to you a couple of things uh, because um, uh, I want to read to you a couple of things that, that Paul carries forward, all right? I'm sorry, I lost my place. Uh, I'm clearly, clearly getting too old to podcast, obviously. Paul says, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, you, if your enemy is thirsty, or if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is a euphemistic way of speaking about bringing conviction upon somebody for their wrongdoing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities. Now, here's the thought that he carries forward. Uh, that, That in Romans 12, Paul prohibits exactly the kind of vengeance and wrath that uh, for, for individual Christians that, that Paul says God gives um, governments to uh, permission to use. So uh, in verse 19, he says, you know, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath or God's vengeance in response to wrongdoing. Um, but he uses the same Greek word in verse 4 of chapter 13, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, uh, be afraid Um uh, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So, so what, what Romans 12 says, do not, do not, Christian, do not take wrath upon yourself. Leave room for God's wrath. And then Romans 13, one of the ways that God executes his wrath, executes his wrath is through fallen governments. 
So he uses the exact same word to forbid individual Christians from doing something that he says that governments themselves do. So the, the thought is, how are Christians to relate to their enemies, to relate to people that persecute them? Paul is saying, listen, in context, you are to forgive. Um, you are to never return evil for evil. Leave room for God's wrath. Don't, don't think that because... I'm calling you to forgive, and you know in Christ I'm willing to forgive, that I will let evil go unpunished. No, no, One example of this is that I will use governments to punish evil. That's what Paul, that's what Paul is trying to say here. He says that God executes vengeance through governments right after he pro- prohibits Christians from doing so. Right? So in 12.19 and 13.4, he's talking, he's talking about vengeance in exactly the same way. It is unmistakable. It is intentional. Um, what Paul says about God's use of the government in Romans 13 is in direct contrast to what he commands the church to do in Romans 12. So no Christian can claim to carry out Romans 13. No Christian can use Romans 13 to justify their behavior. It is not a command. It is a statement about how God brings good out of even the most unjust governments. The command given to Christians is in 1219. It's not in Romans 13. It's all about vengeance. It's God's, God will punish evil, even if we're to forgive it, even if we're to not return evil for evil. The question is, well, then what happens? Do they just get away with it? Paul's answer is no. No way. Absolutely. But the Christians themselves are never to embody. So, so rather than saying like to church people, hey, follow the commands of the state because the, the commands of the state are always good and God ordained. Rather, what Paul is saying is that, listen, the commands of the state go against what it means to follow Jesus. So it is not saying that Christians can just bless the state and say, yes, those, that's established by God. No, no. If that were true, then Paul is issuing a totally absurd command here when he says that, the, that what the government can do, Christians individually cannot do. But instead, what he's saying is that what Christians cannot do, the government can do, but that does not mean that, that the government then is um, is something that, that Christians can bless as perfectly good, perfectly just all the time. In fact, to use a, a, a different point, um, the, uh, let me see here. Oh, where was it? Sorry, I have like 25 pages of notes. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. In fact, so so some will object to my line, uh, line of thinking by saying, "Listen, listen." Several times, Paul uses the phrase, "The governing officials are God's servants." Um, but all Paul is doing, and this is a, a point from Preston, I, I think it's genius. Um, Paul's statement, and I'm just quote, I'm going to quote him right here. Paul's statement reflects. A widespread truth, a widespread truth in the Old Testament about God's working through secular nations to carry out his will. The, for instance, the Old Testament calls many political figures God's servant, such as Cyrus, king of Persia, and Isaiah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and Jeremiah, and the ruthlessly wicked nation of Assyria in Isaiah 10, which God calls the club of my wrath, the rod of my anger. Right? So, so you can be called God's servant even when you're totally opposed to God. The phrase God's servant doesn't refer to Rome or any government sanctified service to Israel's God, but rather to God's sovereign ability to use 
any government as an instrument of his hands. It's actually, rather than saying, hey, government is established by God, therefore follow government, Paul is actually saying something totally much more radical, particularly to a Roman audience, which is, hey, you think Caesar's the ultimate in, uh, in power. I'm telling you that even Caesar's power was given to him by God. Jesus is the same thing to Pilate. When Pilate says, don't you know I have the authority to put you to death? And Jesus looks at him and says, well, no authority is given to you except by my father. So yes, governments exist. Yes, governments have authority. Yes, God has established government um, as a way to work with a fallen world towards maximizing justice and minimizing evil. Even when it says that the government is God's servant, that does not mean that this is, this is somebody doing God's will. This does not mean that this is somebody that God approves of. Rather, this is a way of saying that God can use anybody or anything. He used Pharaoh to accomplish his will. He used Cyrus to accomplish his will. He used uh, Xerxes to accomplish his will. He used Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, God is sovereign over all of this stuff. And that doesn't mean, though, that does not mean that he's established everything that these governments do. Not even remotely. It just means that there's a higher law that Christians sometimes must obey. God uses, just because God uses secular and sometimes very, very evil um, governments and structures to carry out his will does not mean that God approves of everything they do. And then lastly, I hope this is making sense. And then lastly, um, I think there's actually a very missional reason that Paul gives this instruction. Um, so, so, you know, generally, listen, if you're going to quote the Bible in immigration debates, okay, well, we got lots of Bible to quote. Don't just pick and choose. There are passages of civil disobedience where God approves of it. Thirdly, Romans 13 isn't the passage you want to look for there. Uh, first, established is up for debate in terms of what that means. Um, secondly, Paul is actually contrasting uh, and making a different point about Christians taking vengeance rather than laying out a theology of church and state. Not even remotely is he doing that here. Um, he's just carrying his thought forward. Well, how is it that Christians then should respond to government? Simple. Insofar as the government maximizes justice and minimizes evil, submit to it. Insofar as it doesn't, um, then Christians follow the higher law. I mean, it's 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 actually that that simple. Now, it doesn't come across that simple because Paul uses words like, well, the, the, the government is God's servant, but that's just uh, an Old Testament way to talk about unjust or corrupt people being used by God to accomplish his greater purposes in the world, right? So that, that is not a statement of affirmation. And then lastly, I think there's a missional reason why Paul does this. And the, and the missional reason is why he gets very specific. So he talks about submission to governments, but then he, he applies it. He says, this is why you pay taxes. Now, now what has happened, and, and again, there's a lot of scholarship sitting in this. What has happened, and, what, and, and Romans isn't a, a, a book of theology. I mean, of course it is that, but that's not what occasioned it. The, the, what, what we think happened is, is that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, um, put to death two of the church fathers. Um, there was a great persecution that broke out. And then the, the, the edict that Claudius had given expelling the Jews dissolved with his death. And now the Jews were moving back into Rome. So you have a church in Rome that, and if you read, if you read the context and in, in between the lines of Romans, you see that there's this conflict between the Jews, the Jewish Christians, and uh, the Gentile Christians. 
Um, and, and there are all sorts of guesses, but but Paul very clearly is dealing with some sort of disagreement, some sort of animosity between them. There's a big, long backstory Paul's dealing with here between the Jews and the Gentiles that fills in all of his instructions. One of the things that's happening is uh, Nero has taken over, and early Nero was better than late Nero, but Nero just as a whole was awful. Um, uh, but there were riots being uh, that, that were taking place over direct and indirect taxation. Paul uses two words about direct and indirect taxation here. And I think, I think there's a missional component to this. And it's true other places in the scripture as well. When he talks about honoring so-and-so or paying respect to so-and-so, what he's saying is, listen, You've just been expelled. Christians have just undergone massive persecution. The Jews have just been expelled uh, years before by Claudius. They're now filtering back. Guys, it, it, keep your nose, keep your noses clean. There will be times when you must disobey when you must disobey the idolatrous call of Rome to give Rome your allegiance. Uh, there will come times for that, but it's don't do it over taxes. Don't do it over respect or honor you know but but clearly paul doesn't mean because he does it and then he in the book of acts we see the church do it all over the place um where there are times when um we resist uh the the government's call for our allegiance insofar as it compromises our allegiance to christ whenever that happens christ wins ends of end of story and so Paul isn't giving uh, a knockdown proof text that justifies and legitimatizes whatever a government does. And, and the sessions would say, hey, Christians, why don't you shut up? Because doesn't the Bible say you're to follow the, the laws of the land? Well, I'll tell you, the Bible does say government, yes, has been established. And yes, it does say for the sake of our mission, we will be good citizens. We will be good neighbors. Yes, for the sake of our mission. But the minute we see laws that are unjust, for the minute we see um, uh, uh, an allegiance that is being called forth that contradicts our primary and fundamental allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth, we will resist. Now, we will resist the way that Jesus did. We will resist not violently. We will resist, but we will protest and we will resist publicly. We will resist in ways that draw attention to the injustice. Absolutely. The, there's this huge prophetic stream of the people of God and individual prophets within it calling out the injustice of leaders. John the Baptist was martyred because he called out an evil ruler about his marital practices. So, so absolutely, we are people for the sake of the gospel who are good citizens, good neighbors. We don't want to call down the government on us for dumb stuff. But clearly, Paul doesn't mean to never, ever, ever uh, disobey or practice resistance. No, no, of course not. He comes from a long line of people who did. And he, he's in a situation that's a tinderbox in, in, in Rome. And he just simply says, listen, pay your taxes. Man, uh, the authorities are people that are used by God. That's fine. Give, uh, give what, what you owe them. Don't get into trouble with this stuff. This is ridiculous. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If it's revenue, then pay revenue. If it's respect, then pay respect. If it's honor, then honor. But, but clearly, Paul, in his other writings and in the practice of the early church, doesn't mean that's some sort of absolute statement. So I've rambled 42 minutes. I've lost my place several times. I don't know if this has made any sense, but it seemed so unbelievably relevant that I thought we would get into it in an extra special Vox episode. So my brothers and sisters, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, bless you. Thank you.